inventors and their inventions. Welcome to Radio Cade, a podcast from the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention in Gainesville, Florida. The museum is named after James Robert Cade, who invented Gatorade in 1965. My name is Richard Miles. We'll introduce you to inventors and the things that motivate them. We'll learn about their personal stories, how their inventions work, and how their ideas get from the laboratory to the marketplace. I'm Gonna Live Forever is a song from the musical fame, and if only that were true. But it turns out we can slow down some of the effects of aging. And here to join me in my time machine thought capsule is James Clement, the CEO of Better Humans, a company that conducts research into longevity, disease prevention, and general human enhancement. Welcome to Radio K, James. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, James, I'm not going to make you sing any songs from any hit musicals, probably to your relief, but I would like to have you start out by defining for us what anti-aging technologies are and what they actually do. And I'm going to ask my very first follow-on question, does this mean that we can live longer or does it mean we aren't afflicted by the normal conditions that apply to aging people? So the answer is yes to both of those things. We actually have longer living, healthier people amongst us right now. I spent the last 10 years studying supercentenarians and have met many women and men 106, 7, 8 years and older, all the way up to Murano in uh, Italy, who is 117, who are still cogent, living by themselves, often cooking their own food and cleaning their own homes. One gentleman at 109 had just driven from the Tucson area to Denver in a sports car for his daughter's 80-something birthday. A remarkable feat for any elderly person, but at 109, amazing. So my initial quest was to figure out how these people live so long, how they do so in really great shape, and then to see what can we learn from that and apply to the rest of us who aren't so lucky. So James, I'll just ask a kind of a nerdy social science question. It sounds like there are enough supercentarians, so people not just 100, but 100 what? 110. Okay. Are there enough of that population to study and make valid conclusions in the study of this? That's sort of debatable. Okay. <laughs> so my mentor, George Church, one of the top geneticists in the United States, he's at Harvard Medical School. He believes that you can discover rare phenotypes from even N of 1. So a single person compared to everyone else's genetics, you can tease out what the differences might be. And certainly in a small family, brothers and sisters and mom and dad, etc., that have and don't have a similar phenotype, then you have an even better group to compare. So a mother and a son, let's say, who have protection against diabetes and can seemingly eat pure sugar and their blood sugar doesn't rise at all. And in that same family are two type 2 diabetics. Like, that's a perfect scenario. It's actually one that I'm currently studying. But uh, other people, Craig Venter being on the other side of that coin, and I've had meetings with him about this issue, believes you need thousands, maybe tens of thousands of subjects. And unfortunately, the number of people who at any one given time are documented supercentenarians in the world is about 60. 60. And the turnover, unfortunately, is pretty fast. (laughs) Um, So in five years, there's basically a completely new group of 60 people. 
but that's still a small number when you're trying to tease out genetic variables. But we've actually been seeing some success in this. There are several scientists that spend their life focused on this and doing it near Barzilai at Albert Einstein Medical School. Uh, Tom Pearls at Boston College are two of the leading experts in this field. And I based a lot of the work in my study on their past work. So this is something, I think, a topic that is fascinating to most people, you know, looking at these 110 plus people. And you read an interview with someone like this and, and you read of one characteristic or one habit they have and go, aha, there we go. You know, they drank whiskey every morning or such and such. How much of when you interview, you study these people, how much do you take into account those sort of environmental habits versus their genetic makeup? Well, I came into this from the genetic side. Mm -hmm. So I had been on the board of directors of one of the first direct-to-consumer genetic testing companies, co-founded by George Church. George is a genetics professor. So we got together to start this study back in 2010, specifically to look at the genetics. And even at that time, researchers from Europe had pretty much said that when it comes to supercentenarians, their ability to share this genetic information with family members, such as siblings, was 17 times higher than non-supercentenarians. So for example, a change in the genes that that increase your chances of breast cancer, for example, is just a small order of magnitude. So it's maybe a 30% increase. Here we're talking about a 1,700 times increase, percent increase. So 17 times greater chance of being a centenarian if you have a close relative who's a supercentenarian. So it's an amazing genetic advantage, and we wanted to specifically focus on that. However, more relevant to your point is in meeting the approximately 60 people of this age group that I did over a multi-year period, I can tell you that they come from southern states, African-Americans whose parents were slaves. They come from recent Jewish immigrants, came to America fleeing the Holocaust and Nazi Germany and became 110-year-olds here. And I don't think that it is an environmental issue. We've tried to talk to them about their diets, not just at 110, but what do they recall eating when they were growing up, etc. And of course, these people born at the turn of the century between the 1800s and the 1900s, they weren't eating McDonald's right. and other fast foods. They didn't have the luxury of these fantastically stocked grocery stores. So primarily, they were doing what my grandparents did. I grew up on a farm, and my grandparents lived right across the street from us and had a huge garden that they not only lived from in the summer, but then they canned all the vegetables for the winter and they had their own livestock. So they took that to a shop and had it butchered and that's what they ate from as well. This is the same thing you see in both blue zones and with these supercentenarians while they were growing up is that they ate very natural foods. Mm -hmm. If I understand correctly, your research has identified what's going on at the cellular level in that relationship to aging. If you could walk me through a little bit what you found dealing with inflammation, with zombie cells, what do you think you found is going on at the cellular level with regard to aging or coming up with therapeutic anti-aging medicines, for instance? One of the things I did around 2013, I spent a year just looking at metabolism and how it's tied into calorie restriction, the ketogenic diet, fasting, etc. And about 500 papers into that, I started connecting dots. And the dots all seem to lead to an intracellular pathway called mTOR. 
It's a relatively new discovery from the 1970s based on bacterium that was found in the soil at Easter Island. Hmm. And basically, this complex that's inside all of our somatic cells, so every cell that has a nucleus, tells a cell whether the conditions are right, environmental conditions for that cell, to go through cell division and to produce proteins. And so if any of these environmental conditions don't meet the case, it stops that process and goes into recycling its existing proteins and organelles on pretty much a dysfunctional basis, meaning it will take misfolded proteins and high ROS, reactive oxygen species producing mitochondria. Those are the bad mitochondria that are producing a lot of free radicals as they make the ATP that energizes the cell. And through a process called autophagy, it will surround these with a membrane, bring them to the lysosome, which is filled with acid, and then dissolve these proteins and organelles back to their basic compounds to be recycled in the cell. So it's a very conserved process that goes all the way back to bacterium to allow the cell to survive hardship, like a drought, food scarcity, not enough oxygen in the environment, different environmental triggers. But in humans, it very much tells the cell when it's time to repair itself and when it's time to make more of itself. This is at the heart of almost every anti-aging intervention we know of, including uh, lots of nutraceuticals, so omega-3, glucosamine, ECGT, which is the extract from green tea, curcumin, lots of these things suppress mTOR and turn on autophagy. And like most things in life, you don't want it all one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So you can't say, gee, I've read all these things that say fasting is really beneficial. I'm just going to fast the rest of my life. I'm not going to eat anything. That should be really beneficial, right? So instead, you have to cycle these things back and forth. And whether it's following how we evolved, which was there were droughts, there were winters, there were ice ages, all kinds of things which impeded our ability to supply ourselves with all the nutrients and, and oxygen and everything it needs, humans were constantly going back and forth between feast and famine on a daily basis even. So stress, no stress, stress, no stress, and that's yes. kind of what keeps the cell healthy or at least keeps it from doing bad things? Well, it's more that organisms have evolved to utilize these challenges. Got it. So by getting rid of the misfolded proteins and dysfunctional organelles that are inside the cells, it actually turned out that the cells would live longer and in better health, and thus the organism as a whole would live longer. So we interrupt that process at our own peril. And unfortunately, from about the mid-1800s on, we've made so many advancements in agriculture, in industrial agriculture, producing food products, preserving them with refrigeration, for example, being able to ship things all over the world, both because of shipping in airplanes, but also the logistics we have capable of now of just-in-time produce at any grocery store practically in the Western world. We basically find ourselves with no famine ever in the Western world. Sure foods that didn't even exist in human history or have been modified through human effort. So if you look at old photographs, even Renaissance paintings of fruit, they don't look much like our fruit now. 
They were really small. They were not really that great tasting. This is one of the reasons, for example, apples were made into cider. Nobody ate an apple before the genetics were changed and by, you can get by about humans. Forty-seven different varieties, right? Yes, 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 and they're filled with sugar and yeah. really delicious to eat. Unlike what was made in the 1700s, for example, and our founding fathers drank this low-alcohol ale and cider primarily because you didn't have clean water. Right. Right. And to make those products, they get boiled mm -hmm. and then fermented. And those two processes is very protective against bacteria and other funk that would contaminate water and was found in groundwater. But we forget all this history and we forget how humans evolved. And we look at this abundance that we have now as just being normal right. and thinking that we just snack all day, sitting at our desks, getting up only maybe to go to lunch, that we're not going to have any ill effects. And I think this is one of the things I've seen from both studying these supercentenarians, looking at the people who live in the so-called blue zones or health oases, mm -hmm. and studying the intracellular mechanisms that I think are being triggered by those people who live in these areas and, and follow these different lifestyles that allows them to live so long and so healthily, is that this mTOR autophagy coin, so to speak, with one on one side and one on the other, is really really one of the fundamental anti-aging principles that we know now. One of my theories about how this has gotten worse is whenever you get a package at home with too much candy, you go like, I know what I'll do. I'll bring it to work, right? And so <laughs> place I used to work in D.C., I would never eat candy at home, but my golly, there's a bowl of Snickers there. And every time you go get a cup of coffee, you're going to stop at least once and get a Tootsie Roll. Yeah. And if you're in a large office, I previously had a career as an international tax lawyer in a Park Avenue firm. You can end up in a big enough organization that there's a birthday or two every oh, day. Sure. Every day, yeah. Every right. day. There's yeah. always cake. Yeah, you never have to bring your lunch. Right? <laughs> there's right. something to eat. Um, James, let's talk a, a little bit about the business or the commercialization aspect of the technologies that you're working on. People like movie stars and celebrities have always been dabbling in anti-aging processes for a long time, have had access to all the latest treatments, some of which are probably work and some are quacks. But you want to actually make some of these technologies more available to just regular folk, lower costs. What does that look like? Do you have a company already or are there companies that are getting these things to market? And I presume they're what drugs or there are some sort of treatments that are reasonable costs and that will eventually become a, a mass market type of phenomenon. Your first point Anti-aging up until very recently has been mostly cosmetic. Mm -hmm. So it's been basically tricking the outside world based on your skin yeah. and your muscle tone and things like that, that you were still... The facelift ain't making you any younger. You were right? still... Exactly. <laughs> But certainly in the last 10 years and now five years, we've seen just an exponential increase in our knowledge regarding anti-aging therapies. Uh, I started studying in 2008 and 2009, looking at where I thought the most impact was going to be. And it was, and I still think, in kind of a combination of two things, stem cells and genetic therapy. And my unfulfilled dream so far is to combine those two. So taking your autologous stem cells, taking them out of your body, genetically improving them. So let's say you've got an allele like I have for increased risk of diabetes. Let's just change that mm -hmm. and then expand and put those stem cells back into you so that you now have better genetic code than you started off with. So that's where I'm ultimately headed in my own research. But there's lots of scientists now working in anti-aging. I've seen a tremendous change where I would talk to scientists and they would say, oh, I'm totally on board with this, but I can't tell anyone. Mm -hmm. And I was actually at a scientist's presentation at Harvard, I think it was five or six years ago, when he said, I just got tenure and now I can tell this entire audience that my sole focus in life is slowing down aging. 
And he said, I had to wait till I got tenure to yeah. do that. But that's no longer the case. And now there's anti-aging companies. You've got Google with Calico, HLI, which is something Craig Venter is associated with, Human Longevity Inc., set up by Brian Johnson. Ajax with Mike West, Unity Biotech, lots of companies that are all looking at anti-aging therapeutics that will directly intervene in some aspect of aging in order to reverse damage that's already been done or prevent it from happening. And I'm very much involved in this, currently doing human clinical trials in areas where it involves nutraceuticals or things that don't necessarily have commercial value. So Better Humans, the organization that I founded and operate through, is a nonprofit. And we're entirely subsidized by a small number of donors. Mm -hmm. We have a pretty good budget. It's worked up over the years. So I started off with a very small lab in Los Angeles. I moved to Gainesville, and I've been building a much larger lab. And we're hiring local PhDs and bringing in PhDs with various specialties from outside the U.S. And... I'm particularly focused on taking anti-aging therapies that are not going to be commercialized because either they're based on information that can't be patented or they are involving already generic drugs and or nutraceuticals. So for example, the Mayo Clinic researcher, uh, James Kirkland, came up with a combination of drugs one, a chemotherapy agent called Etzatinib, and another, a nutraceutical called Quercetin, which working together do a great job of killing off these senescent zombie cells. Mm -hmm. So these are cells that are stopped in their life cycle process. So instead of replicating, they go into this senescent or quiescent cycle where they no longer replicate and they become dysfunctional and they actually produce pro-inflammatory cytokines. Those are proteins that basically tell cells in their near environment, I have some sort of problem. You should send over immune cells and either get rid of me or send other anti-inflammatories. And if I'm being challenged by a virus or a bacteria, kill them off. But these are cells that probably haven't been attacked by a virus or a bacteria. But for other reasons, usually genetic damage just haven't been able to complete their normal cell cycle. And they get stuck in this for a really long period of time. Mm -hmm. And as they build up, and it's believed that elderly people might have as much as 10 or 12% of their entire bodily cells are senescent, and these are producing these pro-inflammatory cytokines, you end up with individuals with very high levels of what's called chronic systemic inflammation. And their body is constantly in a fight or flight situation right. where they're trying to deal with an invader that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so their organs receive all these pro-inflammatory proteins and basically stop functioning as well. So there's drugs that kill off these cells. Right. And your body restores new healthy cells in their place. So it's at least theoretically a really great therapy the Mayo Clinic was the first to highlight this and to say that they believe that it would work for certain pathologies like osteoarthritis and pulmonary fibrosis. I had talked to the researcher at a conference to find out when they were going to launch a clinical trial, and he wasn't sure. So I decided to get an IRB. That's an institutional review board. They basically look at clinical trials mm. and determine whether or not this is ethical in terms of the risk versus the potential benefit to, to medicine. And I got approval for a protocol to treat people with dasatinib and quercetin. And dasatinib is a generic drug. Mm -hmm. Quercetin is an over-the-counter nutraceutical you can buy. And we did a year-long study giving 30 patients who had osteoarthritis and two who had pulmonary fibrosis in addition to osteoarthritis. These compounds only three times. 
and saw absolutely amazing results. So we're talking about, in one case, a generic drug that's already available and an over-the-counter, what was the second component? Nutraceutical. Nutraceutical, which is basically derived supplement supplement from either plant or animal. Correct. It's a flavonoid, which comes from plants. Okay. So that sounds very promising. I've already decided we're going to schedule our follow-up podcast 55 years from now when I will just have made it as a super centurion and (laughs) we'll see how this goes. James, in the time remaining, I'd like to ask you a little bit about yourself. From listening to you talk, it sounds like you've been a scientist your entire career career, but that's in fact not true. You did hint already that you're an international tax lawyer, and then before that, you actually started out in politics, right? Or a version of politics? Yeah. Let's go back before pre-professional. You, you were from Missouri. Were you raised on a farm, or where were I, you I raised? Was. I okay. was raised on a farm. My parents themselves were not farmers, but they built a house on my grandparents' farm. And my dad was an electrician. My mom was a nurse. I have one sister a year older than I am. I was born in 55, and so I recall seeing John F. Kennedy's We Choose to Go to the Moon speech. For me, the entire Gemini, Mercury, Apollo missions were just meant for a kid. I was just absolutely infatuated with rocketry and space and astronomy and all this stuff. In high school, I was torn between opposition to the Vietnam War politically, and, and I would say most of my high school teachers, who were luckily fairly young and liberal, versus my interest in science. And so I ended up going to college to study both of those. Mm -hmm. Science in the field of psychology through neurophysiology. And I was really lucky and I got an internship with a neurophysiologist at a nearby medical school and got published in science as a co-author on a paper when I was a junior in college, which is a really big deal. And I was very fortunate for that. But my other major was political science and I helped politicians, mostly Democrats in Missouri, get office. I ended up immediately after college working for the president pro tem of the Missouri Senate, helping him prepare for a gubernatorial election. And in that process, decided I would go to law school. Again, really fortunate to get accepted to University of California Hastings Law School. I went there and pretty much right away was dissuaded by people who had sort of gone the route I'd looked at of international government as a career choice. Those who had done that basically talked me out of it. So (laughs) I ended up becoming an international business and tax lawyer, getting a job in Hawaii and helping mostly Asians from Japan and Hong Kong, which was still British at that time, invest in the United States. And then went to NYU, got an advanced law degree in international tax planning, ended up working in New York City for a few more years, and then just decided to become a business person. And I sort of took my love of molecular biology right. and became a brewmaster. Opened up a brew pub at a college All campus. Bulletproof logic. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I went from one bar to another. <laughs> and then just followed many entrepreneurial interests. But when I was turning 50, my parents were turning 70s. My dad had had open heart surgery, and I was really starting to comprehend what aging was going to do to them and decided that rather than being a dilettante and just standing by the sidelines and reading other people's books and taking their advice, I would get into the field myself. That's an amazing career arc, I got to say, James. I just want to know who's going to play you in the movie, right? You trained as a scientist, you went into politics, you became a lawyer, and then back into science. At at an age where people are starting to think about retiring, you're plunging back into a pretty challenging field. I mean, this is not just uh, some hobby, right? That's right. In the past 10 years, I've read over 18,000 scientific papers. 
And um, I feel like I've made up for the fact that I didn't specialize in college yeah. in biology, that I didn't become a doctor or a PhD. And I spend most of my time going back and forth between reading new papers, talking to other scientists, and thinking about my own experiments and where we'll go from there. So the, the purpose of the lab is to basically back up some of the clinical trial work mm -hmm. that we're doing with being able to use a mass spectrometer to analyze proteins in people's blood to do gene expression and DNA sequencing in our lab as well. So I'm really pleased that I have this ability. I absolutely love what I'm doing. I wake up every day really excited to do one more thing to try and slow down aging. And I kind of use my now nearly 90-year-old parents as my inspiration and sort of guidance that we need yeah. this because I see so many people in their 70s and 80s that are suffering. And I recall meeting these 109, 110-year-old people. They were doing just great. Well, I would think that's inspiration itself, right? You t say, hey, mom and dad, you got to live another 20 years before you even make it into my study, right? <laughs> right. Absolutely. And I think there's something referred to by Aubrey de Grey as longevity escape velocity. And it basically means that as science provides us with better and better understanding, we will develop therapies that will just give you like one more year's worth or two more years worth of healthy lifespan. And I think in the very near future, we're going to get to the point where this happens more quickly than one year. Right. So that we actually gain lifespan as time goes by instead of it decreases as we age. James, one final question. If you could go back and talk to your 21 or 22-year-old self coming out of college and you've got uh, these two distinctly different interests, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? Anything? So I'm a big sci-fi fan, uh -huh. and this idea of going back and telling yourself something <laughs> never seems to work out in those stories. I think I would have preferred a lifetime in science rather than other areas. I'm basically a humanist at heart, so I deeply care about human beings and their ability to act. At the time, I thought politics was my way to help society and humans, but I think I'm more personally predisposed to figuring things out and that science is a perfect fit for me. James, this has been a fascinating interview, and I've, I've already got the studio booked for uh, 2074 for our follow-up interview I talk about. I hope um, we're both here to, to do that. Exactly. But thank you very much for joining me today on Radio K. Thanks very much. I'm Richard Miles. Radio Cade would like to thank the following people for their help and support. Liz Gist of the Cade Museum for coordinating inventor interviews. Bob McPeak of Hartwood Soundstage in downtown Gainesville, Florida for recording, editing, and production of the podcasts and music theme. Tracy Collins for the composition and performance of the Radio Cade theme song featuring violinist Jacob Lawson. And special thanks to the Cade Museum for Creativity and Invention, located in Gainesville, Florida.